0: Before I begin, let me say a word about uh, yesterday's mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. The lone gunman, armed with weapons of war and hate-filled soul, shot and killed ten innocent people in cold blood at a grocery store on Saturday afternoon, racially motivated act of white supremacy and violent extremism. We must all work together to address the hate that remains a stain on the soul of America. Hearts are heavy once again, but a resolve must never ever waver. Yes, very sad. Anyway, it got me thinking. Being a cop today is a heck of a lot harder than it's ever been. We should focus on and fund the things we know that work. And we should agree, it's not to defund the police, it's to fund the police fund them with the resources, the training, they need to protect our communities and themselves and restore trust among the police and the people.
1: Hey, hello, hello, and welcome to Not a Lawyer podcast, a leftist critique of law and politics from a queer migrant perspective, which is mine, from my perspective. My name is Lauren Ruiz. I'm a law graduate from the University of Arizona, currently residing in the inglorious state of Utah. Let's get into it. Um, first off, I want to talk about how infuriating it is to me that Joe Biden would give these, uh, platitudes about the Buffalo Massacre. Um, saying things like, oh, white supremacy is a stain on America. We should all strengthen our resolve. Anyway, back to the cop memorial that I'm at. Um, thank you, Cops. Thank you to all cops. I just want to go ahead and say that we should fund all cops and say that, um, more cops. More cops and more money for cops. Thanks, everyone. Have a good day. I mean, okay. Yeah, I understand logistically, like, he already had planned to go to this thing. So it's like, it's you know, we could definitely have a conversation about the fact that the President of the United States doesn't need to be showing up at cop memorials and exalting them as if they were fucking fallen soldiers. You know what I mean? Like... Let's go ahead and talk about how we exalt fallen soldiers, too. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like Joe Biden really doesn't need to be showing up to this memorial to begin with. And it's very problematic, I think, and fascist that he does show up to these things and exalt these people who are probably racist. And that's the thing is that we know full well that racists are embedded in police departments. Like, we know that, we've known that, it's documented, it's reported um, directly from communities constantly, you know? Like, it's just, it, it is a fact that white supremacists are embedded in the police force. And what where I would go as far to say that police forces are racist and are comprised of racists, white supremacists absolutely infiltrate police forces. So yeah, you know, we can have conversations all day about whether or not the institution is white supremacist. I believe it is. Um, just looking at its, its history and its, its mission history from the beginning, you know, starting with slave patrols and then becoming, um, beating, uh, squads of, uh, union busters. Um, this is all, it is all documented. You know, you can look this stuff up. Um, I'm thinking specifically about Michelle Alexander's *The New Jim Crow* when I say these things, which highly recommend, really good read. So it's not really disputed that the cause of policing is comes from a white supremacist space. I guess a lot of people would like to deny that today they are racist, uh, including Joe Biden. So what really frustrates me about the the speech that he gave is that yeah, okay. He had already pre planned this speech. Um, on Tuesday, I was going to go give this speech. Like, yeah, it's really ironic and disrespectful to juxtapose acting like I'm against white supremacy and then to move on and praise all cops. Like, but, ¿qué más me toca? You know, like, what else can I do? I understand that this engagement was already programmed before Joe Biden realized he was going to have to talk about white supremacy beforehand. That being said, he's also the president. He has pretty much every resource at his disposal to be able to write a new speech. And that's what he needed to do. That's what needed to happen is if he was going to go to a cop memorial, he needed to make, he needed to have the difficult conversation with, in front of an audience of white supremacists about the fact that he knows who they are. I think that he could have said, white supremacy is a blight on our society and a stain on our society, moving right along to why we're here at this cop memorial. I understand that a lot of the people in this room have affinities for the things that white supremacists talk about. I understand that a lot of people in this room don't believe that they are racists, don't believe that they are white supremacists, but not that nonetheless have affinities for some of the things that white supremacists say. Like, there's this didn't come from nothing. This didn't come from nowhere. White supremacy is not new in police departments, and that's what he should have done. Like, if he actually wants to be taken seriously by progressive populations, people like me who are critical of his bullshit, um, communities of color who are terrorized by police forces constantly and who, who are already, you know, it's already an insult for the 10 dead, innocent black people who were killed by a white supremacist, a fucking self-avowed white supremacist, n- no doubt in anyone's mind or in any part of the factual record of what happened. And yet he, and yet Joe Biden is going to get up on a stage and say, wow, this is so sad. Racism is really bad. However, I would prefer to get reelected than talk about the fact that I'm in a room full of racists right now. In fact, I probably don't want to confront my own internalized racism either because that would be too hard and I don't want to do that. So, you know, instead of having difficult conversations about racism as a non-black person in a room full of cop sympathizers, I'm just going to go ahead and pander to the crowd and show all of the people who already distrust me, you know, just codifying their minds exactly why, you know, it's like, okay, let me go ahead and say this much. I'm not a brown person. I have a light skin, have green eyes. I have chestnut hair. I um, am. So when I talk about the fact that white people are racist, I'm talking about myself, like everyone who has grown up in a white supremacist society, who is white or passes as white or has any kind of affinity for whiteness, we're all getting white supremacy programmed into us, especially in a place like Utah. I grew up in a place that was predominantly white. There's Latinx suburbs and Salt Lake City, sure. I wasn't from those places. So I was surrounded by whiteness. I was surrounded by conservatism and I was conservative when I was a kid and I was bigoted when I was a kid because that's what you absorb. It's just what's normalized in, in, in your environment. And so as an adult, as a critical, as a critically minded and engaged adult, it's all of our jobs to deprogram this shit. So Joe Biden's a fucking racist and I don't like him, like, forgive me, you know, I'm sure he would disagree, Um, but it's just, it is what it is. When you look at what his policies have been, um, the way, like, just, it's, he's just... We don't even have enough time to get into If I wanted to do a, a series about why I hate Joe Biden and why everyone else should hate Joe Biden, that could just be a podcast series on its own. Um, so the president of the United States is a closet racist who actually is friends with white supremacists. I mean, he's said before, really I, I really, really love the days when I would shake hands with segregationists. Joe Biden doesn't have a problem with racists. He has a problem with racism getting in the way with his campaign strategies. Now that that's what he really has a problem with, you know? I just wanted to share those feelings. I know that that intro was a little bit irreverent and I had some hesitations about it because it is a tragedy and it's really hor- horrific what's happened to these innocent people and I don't want to downplay any of that and make a joke out of that at all. What I think is a joke is the fact that we have a president. Who will talk to a room full of white supremacists? Like, I, to, he could, he may as well have been at a Klan's rally, in my opinion. Like, and and he, like, had the fucking audacity to tell them that white supremacy is bad, and then move on to praising them in the end. I know he's given speeches and spoken to Buffalo since then, but I wanted to open that episode with that because I felt like it was really striking to me and really illustrative of who Joe Biden is and why me and a lot of others have problems with him. I want to move on from that for now and talk about this Supreme Court. Um, Well, the Supreme Court clearly lost all sense of its legitimacy in releasing this draft opinion um, overturning Roe versus Wade. I read the opinion and took notes and was very willing to go into it with y'all about how every single argument made in this opinion is garbage and insincere bullshit. But then I realized... That would be giving too much credence to the drafters of this opinion. That if we were to actually take the time to go through the twists and turns and roller coaster rides of this opinion, it really would just validate the lies that they're saying. Like they're propping up all this bullshit to justify a political outcome that they want. This is a Supreme Court that has, what is it, three, four Trumpies, um, people who are right-wing like dickheads you know I, I just <laughs> I I'm not the BBC I'm not here to give you a bullet point on why all of Donald Trump's nominees were garbage but it's definitely something that you can go ahead and find for yourself they were very clear about what their priorities were as far as ending abortion and being right-wing dickheads and that's literally why they got appointed to the Supreme Court, even though they didn't have the experience that's actually necessary, expected and required of that position. So people who follow the law understand that the Supreme Court already had a legitimacy problem before this, this draft came out. And so once now, now that it did come out, which hooray, thank you so much. Whoever released that is a hero, in my opinion. Um... Because it needed to happen. This opinion, it really, it, it strips 50-year well-established precedent. When I was in school and I learned about Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the way that shit was taught to me, this is well-entrenched law. This is well-established. We had Roe versus Wade, which gave us the primary framework of establishing early abortions as a human right as a constitutional right, because we don't use the language of human rights in the United States because we're against human rights in this country. That's another conversation I'd be happy to have. We established it as a constitutional right half a century ago. Planned Parenthood versus Casey was in the 90s, so that was 15, 20 years later, where another Supreme Court reaffirmed the fact that Roe versus Wade is good law. And so that has been established, deeply entrenched now, and now we get these Trump appointees who all lied under oath, who all lied, I think they were under oath when they, when they told the approval committees at the Senate, they oh, all, are you going to, are, do you have a problem with Roe Wade? No. Are you going to do anything to Roe vs. Wade? No. I respect Roe vs. Wade. Lie. So they lied. I saw a really interesting TikTok that was like, um, so why is it that, like, when you lie at a job interview and then later they found out that you lied, you get fired? And, why, and, and, and that when you lie uh, in court, later you get charged with, like, perjury or contempt or what have you. And why is it that there's, like, no recourse whatsoever when a Supreme Court justice lies in their confirmation hearing and then just turns around and does whatever the fuck they want? And so it's just really putting front and center what w- an institutional catastrophe. I am Venezuelan. I know what it's like to come from a country where nobody respects the institutions of government, where it's very obvious that the institutions of government have been politicized and undemocratized and people don't respect it, don't take it seriously. You know what that leads to? Coups, revolutions, um, deaths, riots. It's really, really bad what can start to happen when people stop respecting the infrastructures of their government, when people stop viewing the authoritative bodies in their government as legitimate it's the beginning of institutional collapse which is as frightening as it sounds and all that that implies um us radicals over here are like yes burn it down change the system we need to change things it's about time But also, this isn't really, like, a good way to go about it, right? I'm not, like, happy that it's... be. Oh, good thing the Supreme Court's an illegitimate body full of white supremacists writing bad law that the people hate. Hooray, we're on our way to revolution. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, I definitely don't feel that way. This opinion is a disaster. What it does is it breaks all of its own rules, um, all of the established rules of jurisprudence as far as stare decisis. It's a hideously pronounced um, Latin term that means we stand on the shoulders of giants and the courts are a conservative body and we're basically going to do what courts before have decided to do if we're looking at the same situation because the idea is we want the law to be unobjective. Unbiased, I mean. Unbiased and objective. We don't want two situations that are factually similar but tug at your heartstrings in different kinds of ways to get different outcomes. And so that's why we have this whole system of the law. All these boxes and categories as far as um, sentencing goes. I mean, I, I think back to the confirmation of Justice Katanji Brown Jackson and all these conservatives who were like, oh man, will you fucking sent this child predator to three months you did this twice. You are so easy on child predators. Look at you. How come you don't think that the number of photos, how come you don't think that adding three more photos should give you like 50 more years to life? Well, let me tell you guys, um, it doesn't really make sense when everyone has hundreds of photos on their computers all the time to be charging somebody 10 years more because they have two more photos. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not actually, it doesn't make sense. Like... And, and, and what she was trying to explain to them, which they just weren't interested in learning or hearing about, right, because what they were interested in doing was actually slandering her with lies before the public, um, was that sentencing regimes, and I made, like, this draft TikTok about this that I never published, people who are, are, are up in arms about how easy she has gone on these, um, child molesters, they don't know how bad it gets. Like, as somebody who has studied criminal law, the whole reason we have sentencing structures is to try and keep our feelings out of the sentencing process and to correlate severity with culpability. So, I had trouble with it at first. It's really strange at first when I'm reading things that are like, well, it's just a normal sexual assault. If it was, like, a date rape, it's an aggravated sexual assault. If, like, the The person almost killed the victim, you know, like and shit like that is like, well, isn't all rape bad? Like, it's kind of gross, like trying to quantify just how bad. But at the end of the day, like these structures exist because we don't want a judge to just be like, "Ew, you have child porn on your computer, you fucking disgust me." One hundred years to life. That's not the way that we want our system to work. If we do permit the legal system to function that way, which we do in immigration courts, for example, then you see. Horrible outcomes like, ew, you're fleeing violence from Central America. Sounds like a lie to me. Deportation and like, I digress. Back to stare decisis. So this opinion is basically like, well, we don't you don't you know, star decisis is optional. Everyone like it's you gotta keep in mind like, we don't actually have to do stare decisis. Like this is not actually a requirement. Um, especially in constitutional questions. After all. Look at Brown, look at Brown versus Board of Education. What a sick irony for this opinion to use fucking Ruth Bader Ginsburg a shit ton of times. And then to also be like, and then look at Brown versus Board. We're like, we're like Brown versus Board, pretty much. Like, (laughs) I wish I was joking, but that was what was in the opinion. You know, it's like, so therefore, you know, like the anti-racists of the past, we are also pursuing justice. By ignoring stare decisis today. Um, I think the real the real issue here um, is that the Supreme Court and all courts have this narrative that they like to tell themselves that they don't create laws and that's the that sort of deference what it does is it leads to this deference where the courts will be like well actually we don't create laws that's actually in the realm of the legislature and it would really be undemocratic for us to be the one creating laws. And so we're just going to leave that to, to the Congress. And that's what they do here in, in this this draft opinion overturning Roe. They're like, really, like, all of these states have already implemented laws showing that they don't want to follow Roe. And so, like, clearly it's still up in arms and it's still a contested issue. It's not a contested issue. But like, very well established, like, polling and statistical information shows that most people support Roe and want Roe to stay. Like, no more than 30%, I think, of people in any state wanted to overturn Roe. So it's a minority issue that most people don't want. And zooming out a little bit, I want to go ahead and say that United States violates a lot of human rights laws, a lot of human rights principles. We are an imperialist nation that commits war crimes abroad, human rights crimes at home. And that's why we do everything in our power to delegitimate international human rights structures and international law structures that's why we don't allow ICC jurisdiction over us that's why we created back in the colonial times this whole system of signing versus ratification we invented that bullshit like the rule is you sign the treaty you follow it but we decided <laughs> that no actually we sign treaties but we don't mean it we we lie all, we're, we're just lying and so we have to also ratify the treaty so we have a two step process in our and when it comes to adopting international human rights principles we have conventions treaties that establish all all kinds of principles rights right to abortion is absolutely something that's considered a woman's right a human right to health you know and um for obvious reasons because we see the way that it destabilizes countries we see the way that it destabilizes people who give birth. Um, it's just, it's fucked up. It's a, and that's why the statistics here in the U S like are against it, you know? And so the reason I zoomed out and started talking about human rights was because that's really the issue here too, is that we've got this problem where we've got, so we've got, okay, we've got courts who pretend that they don't make laws. The biggest lie in the world is that courts don't create law. We live in a common law system everywhere else in the world, besides the United States and England, The UK, you know, uses a civil law system where it's like what's on the books is on the books and the books are what say. The United States and England is different because we're fucking glorious colonizers who do things different. And our judges do make laws. Like our judges will establish legal norms. That's what we do. It is the defining element of our legal system. Nonetheless, everyone likes to pretend that they don't, and that's something that really frustrated me about studying law, you know, is that I, I spent three years learning what all the rules are, how everything works, and then you see the highest powers of the land bastardizing these rules, bastardizing these norms, lying outright in this this fucking SCOTUS draft. They go, ah, oh, because abortion is a highly contested issue, clearly it hasn't been resolved, and real clearly made the controversy worse that's a lie. Like, we know this lie. Because statistically, we know that more than 30% of people don't want to overturn Roe. They lie to us. And, and it, these are the highest powers of the land. They're you're lying to us. You know? <laughs> it's just, we've got these courts acting like, lying to us, saying that they don't make law. Total bullshit. But then, you know, it's easy when law schools in this country are America First, don't really talk about comparative law at all. My law school didn't have a comparative law course. I'm not trying to talk shit on my school. Uh, It was a cool school that had like cool programming, didn't have a comparative law course, not a goddamn one. So ask me a little bit more about how civil law works. I'm going to start stopping short, you know, but what I do know is that civil and common law like are fundamentally different. And that the defining difference is the fact that common law systems, such as ours in the United States, create laws in their courts, you know. But it's easier to occult that reality if we just don't teach it to the professionals going into these positions of power. So I'd like to take a moment and read Joe Biden's tweet in regards to this SCOTUS draft overturning Roe. He said... Quote, to protect the right to choose, voters need to elect more pro-choice senators this November and return a pro-choice majority to the House. If they do, Congress can pass this bill in January and put it on my desk so I can sign it into law. Wow. Crazy.
0: You're crazy, girl.
1: Get out the vote, guys. Back to the ballot boxes. It's just, like, so typical. I just have nothing else to say about it. Who am I kidding? I always have shit to say. What the fuck do you mean, if and only if, you elect enough people? Actually, guess what? You're the president. You can do more. Like, you have the power. I'm so tired of Democrats being so fucking worthless and just being like, oh my god, I'm so institutionally bound as president. I can't do jack shit, ever. We all saw fucking Donald Trump do illegal shit left and right with his executive orders every other day, you know, like... And he knows this. He knows. He knows. And he's just bullshitting. He's just lying. If this opinion gets published, go ahead and mark my words now. It's the end of the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Like, we cannot as a nation, consider the Supreme Court a legitimate judicial body when it's doing these kinds of things. When we see that Donald Trump was able to wedge three, four ideologues into his court in order to bring about the outcomes that he wanted, and then they do so, stripping people of widely popular human rights that are been established in the Constitution, trying to unravel the whole fucking thing. They're, the, the way that they argue this shit, they go... Well, the word abortion actually isn't in the Constitution at all. And so because of that, what what are we going to do? Just imply it? Like, huh? How could how dare Roe v. Wade be like, it's implied into the right of privacy. No, that's not how this shit works. No, that's wrong and it's overturned. That is how this shit works. <laughs> they know that that's how this shit works. I heard a pundit describe it as judicial gaslighting and I thought that was fucking brilliant because that's really what it is when they say things like this. When they go like, you know, I really just want this opinion there's a part that goes we want this opinion to really just be limited to abortion and we don't want it to impact other privacy rights okay because that's the biggest response is like what do you mean there's no implied privacy rights so you're here to tell me that the right to contraception is unraveled now too so you're here to tell me that the right to having gay sex in the privacy of my home is unraveled now too uh you're here to tell me that the right to not get surgeries done on me against my will is also not a constitutional right like And for them to, and then they go and they turn and say, "Well, also we just want to limit this to abortion." That's not how this works, and you know that that's not how this works. Like the whole point of the law, and this is why I mentioned Ketanji Brown Jackson. The whole point of things like sentencing structures, the whole the whole point of structuring law the way that it is, is to keep people's hearts from getting in the way of like making these decisions. In other words, when the judge comes up with a legal analysis and they say something like. Well, if the word abortion isn't in the Constitution, then we can't imply it in there. That's going to apply to every single constitutional issue equally because it's an abstract legal principle. It's a framework, right? That the, the whole point is that like when we look at fucking free speech law, um, the whole point is that it has to be content neutral. That's a whole other story. It's because white supremacists wanted to craft free speech law in their benefit to permit them to continue to be white supremacists. Since there have always been white supremacists in the courts, that was something that was approved with flying colors, right? So just as First Amendment jurisprudence has to be content neutral, oh, well, if a fucking uh, migrant rights activist wants to say not one more deportation, then the law better apply the same to them as it would to a Klansman saying kill all fucking people of color, you know, like that it's the the law should treat them the same is how is what first amendment jurisprudence says. Um happy to tear that down another day, but my point is that this case is so bad it makes a mockery out of the entire legal profession. It makes me feel ashamed to be a part of such a disgraced body of imbeciles. So really the conclusion that I've reached in witnessing the institutional collapse of the Supreme Court, or well, the collapse of the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, um, alongside so many other conversations that can be had around constitutional jurisprudence, First Amendment jurisprudence, I guess recently uh, the Supreme Court just uh, sided with Ted Cruz and decided that campaign donations are a protected First Amendment speech. Uh, really, this whole apple is rotten to its core. And what we need to do is eliminate the Constitution, abolish the Constitution, and abolish the Supreme Court, because there's really no way that an unelected body of disconnected oligarchs can be considered the ultimate arbiters of every single body of law ever to the benefit of the masses, um, with no institutional oversight. It's just it's it, it it doesn't work. Bye. That's the answer. We're out of time. I wanted to end the episode. Um, with um, with the TikTok that I saw from Brute America that I thought was really poignant um, just talking a little bit about each of the victims of the Buffalo Massacre. Um, Ruth Whitfield was 86. She was returning from visiting her husband in his nursing home. Pearl Young was 77. She was a teacher in the Buffalo Public School District. She reportedly ran a local food pantry for 25 years. Aaron Salter Jr., 55. He was a retired police officer who worked at the grocery store as a security guard. He opened fire on the gunman in an attempt to stop the mass shooting, but was shot and killed. Roberta Drury was 32. She reportedly helped her brother run his restaurant while he went through cancer treatment. Hayward Patterson was 67. There wasn't anything he wasn't willing to do to better his community, according to his pastor. Katherine Macy was 72. She recently penned a letter to her local newspaper calling for more federal gun regulation. Celestine Cheney was 65. She had just turned 65 years old. Her family said she will be remembered for her smile and laugh. Geraldine Talley was 62. Her niece told CNN that Talley, a mom, was an avid baker and always planned their family reunion. Andre McNeil was 53. He was in town visiting relatives, reportedly picking up a surprise cake for his grandson. Margus Morrison was 52. He was a father of three. My heart goes out to the families of all of the victims. Till next time.